Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In this week's Trending News EU episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Jack Young and Ali May to talk about what's trending now. Jack, what headlines have you been following lately? So following on from one of the stories we covered last time on this podcast around the use of artificial intelligence at an NHS hospital, we talked about the fact that this has been leveraged to improve the efficiency of radiotherapy treatment. Recently, the new NHS long-term workforce plan has been announced, and it highlights how robotics can truly transform surgical care and ease pressures on staff. And that's absolutely much needed, particularly in terms of that easing pressure on staff, because we've seen a lot of strike action recently, and obviously the NHS under a huge amount of pressure with the waiting list. So any forms of innovation that can help alleviate that are obviously much welcomed. And essentially, the plan describes some of the benefits of this technology for surgeons, including improved three-dimensional views and better access to confined spaces by increased maneuverability of things like wrist-like instruments, And in terms of potential benefits for patients, these include smaller incisions in terms of the surgery and improved cosmetic results, as well as an improved and shorter recovery time. It's also worth noting that NHS England is also collaborating with the Royal College of Surgeons of England, as well as the robotic industry, to support research aimed at building a framework for robotics in terms of a surgical curriculum and training program which will also very much help in terms of improving the training experience and overall accelerate the innovation in this space to be able to leverage robotics more frequently to improve patient outcomes. This plan seems to be really encouraging, Jack, especially as it comes at the same time as we are seeing a lot of exciting applications of robotics in UK clinical practice. Devices such as DaVinci are very well known, but there's also some completely new technologies that we've been looking at. And as you said, last month, we had a very practical implementation of AI, and it's exciting to discuss robotics again this month and how the NHS and the UK is managing to to take on board these new technologies and, and improve patient outcomes with them. And one of those examples was a couple of weeks ago at both Royal Brompton and St. Bart's, they carried out robotic-assisted lung biopsies, and this was a first in the UK. The system the clinicians use is iron, which has the potential to improve precision when taking tissue biopsies of lung nodules. It's easy to navigate and it can sample small early stage nodules in areas of the lung that typically wouldn't have been reachable. This is using a combination of shape sensing technology and the robotic assistant iron and is enabling these clinicians to reach hard to access areas and they can remove the tissue with greater precision and accuracy. So... From a patient perspective, what this means is we can get earlier diagnosis, which means a better chance of survival. Also, compared to traditional approaches, it's minimally invasive. It's lovely to see such great innovation, Ollie, within the UK hospitals, especially at a time when we're hearing that this old and outdated technology is continuing to exacerbate the health services staffing crisis, which I called upon earlier. I mean, there are lots of hospitals that still got paper-based records. quite crazy that that is still the case. So it's really nice to see that there's this technology that's now becoming more commonplace to be able to help patients. 
And a recent survey by around 300 surgeons in the UK has found that each surgeon loses an average of four hours a week due to inefficient technology. 54% of these surgeons also reported spending time outside of hospital hours on admin that could have been automated. And over half agree that technology in the operating room is inefficient and could impact the delivery of patient care. Even more, 87% agreed that providing care remotely and remote monitoring of patients will be a key feature in the next 10 years. And only 24% said they had adequate infrastructure at their fingertips in order for them to do this. It's obviously disappointing to hear, Jack, and I think shows that on one side, you've got the innovation that is making patient care and caring for people in the UK more efficient and improving the standard of care. And then on the other hand, you have some of these legacy technologies and legacy processes that are holding clinicians back and that we need to tackle the problem on both fronts. We need to give our doctors adequate technology to support throughout the patient pathway in the NHS. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Ollie. And I actually recently read about a European project called TEF Health, which has received more than 200 million euros worth of funding, which essentially aims to test and validate innovative robotic solutions for the healthcare sector and essentially accelerate their path to market. And to give you a bit more detail on this project, it comprises a number of European nations and essentially is a network of real testing facilities, such as hospital platforms and laboratory testing facilities, which is open to all technology providers across Europe. And it essentially helps them carry out tests and experiments using their innovative AI and robotic solutions in these kind of large scale, sustainable and realistic environments. They're focusing on many aspects of patient care, diagnostics, as well as devices controlled by artificially intelligent programs, some of which are designed for direct use on humans. And these include surgical and nursing robots. When people think about these new technologies, either artificial intelligence or robotics, they're really cool from a theoretical perspective. But the challenge for healthcare systems is how can we actually practically implement them? So it's great to see these EU nations coming together and sharing resources to develop these solutions. And it looks like robotics will represent a really clear opportunity to both increase surgical productivity, but as we said earlier, Jack, as well, also improve patient outcomes. I couldn't agree more, Ali. I think beyond just the improvement in productivity and patient outcomes that we've been considering in terms of like what this technology can bring to patients here in the States, another piece we've been thinking through is how can it maybe improve access to care, right? When you think about what's the potential of robotics for remote patient surgeries, like you said, how are we able to bring that expertise that tends to reside here in the States in academic medical centers out to areas where maybe there aren't as many providers that specialize in that particular type of surgery into some of the, the rural areas or countryside areas that might not have as much access. And that reminds me of another story in terms of improving access that relates to bringing innovative medicines to patients through this newer concept of decentralized clinical trials. Thanks, Jen. We wanted to discuss how work is being done in Europe to overcome the obstacles associated when people think about decentralized clinical trials and how can we further advance their adoption. So from a traditional point of view, clinical trials are conducted at specific trial sites and patients have to travel to them. And the aim of a decentralized clinical trial or a DCT 
is to make it as easy as possible for patients to participate in the clinical trial and reduce the need to travel to central trial sites. And just to put some numbers on this, a recent McKinsey survey found that 70% of all trial participants live more than two hours away from the trial site. So you can see the burden that this has either on people contributing towards clinical trials or from patients trying to access new treatment methods. And this decentralization is enabled through digital tools, through telemedicine, through more mobile and local healthcare, including elements like maybe home visits or remote monitoring and diagnostics, also direct-to-patient shipment of study drugs and electronic informed consent. So there are several new initiatives arising across Europe which are testing this and the utility of this decentralized approach. And for example, in the Nordics, they're currently analyzing the effect of decentralized solutions in a clinical trial for a novel treatment for neuropathic pain. It's really nice to see that Europe is probably catching up with the states in terms of the decentralized trial approach. It's obviously very patient-centric. Beyond just the, the travel time it takes to get to a clinical trial site, it's hard to sometimes reach underserved populations. So these kind of decentralized trials can make it a lot more patient-centric, more easy for patients to participate and obviously accelerate research. I'm really interested to learn a little bit more about that Nordic pilot you touched upon in terms of some more specifics surrounding it. Exactly, Jack. So this is right from the very start of the trial. How can we make it as easy as possible for patients to participate? In the enrollment phase of the pilot study, decentralized solutions were used with web-based questionnaires and then phone and video interviews were used to limit the number of patients coming into the clinic and filtering out those not meeting the recruitment criteria without an on-site face-to-face visit. And then once a patient cohort was identified, patients would use an e-consent form to participate in the clinical trial. Then once the trial started, there are some on-site visits that are required to monitor the treatment's therapeutic effect. Patients can receive questionnaires to fill in from home, and the data is fed into the study database. And all this is immediately visible to site staff and to clinicians and to the data monitors. So we're also enabling live data feeds as well through this decentralized clinical trial. And as you said, if it's an underserved population or or patients are eligible for the therapy, but they live a long way away from the study site, they were still able to participate, supported by local doctors and serving as satellite study sites for physical examinations or blood draws. Sounds like it was a really effective pilot, Ollie, and there seems to be some real benefits to this approach, like you've called out in terms of that exchange of information and providing clarity between the patient and the staff participating within the trial, and also allowing that access to that broader and more engaged population. So really excited to see that. Just wondered if there are any limitations on the flip side in terms of adopting this decentralized approach you've come across. I think at this stage, the feasibility of a decentralized study is really determined by the therapy area that you're considering, or even the type of data that you're trying to collect. So I think at this early stage, it's not suitable for all trials. For instance, if you think about, I've got an Apple Watch on now, this can collect my blood pressure in real time, and that can enable a decentralized trial for hypertension. However, if you're thinking about perhaps an oncology trial where you're measuring tumor sizes and it requires physical examination and diagnostic imaging tools, Perhaps, you know, we're not at a stage yet where those sort of clinical trials could be decentralized. And then the other aspect worth considering is the regulatory requirements on data capture. And these may vary between countries and between regulatory bodies. And this can really complicate the tailoring of the data to local requirements for a large 
global decentralized study. So, for example, in the US, when it comes to consent forms, because of the state by state differences in licensing requirements for medical practice, some trial participants will have to drive to somewhere and sign a form physically with a licensed physician, whereas in other areas, they'll just be able to do that online. And those same differences are exacerbated between European countries and between other countries around the world, where I think everyone is still trying to catch up and create a level playing field on using these technologies to enable patients to access these clinical trials. From what I'm hearing from you, Ollie, it seems like decentralized trials are probably more suited to simpler studies. At this stage, I can see a, a time in the future when the technology is more sorted out, we've got more data in which to work from and best practice that it could go to larger, more complex studies. But it seems like at the present, it's probably more suited to these simpler studies. And I can imagine that a qualitative patient study based on patient perceptions captured through a questionnaire could be a good candidate for this approach. However, perhaps not suited for these more early stage trials during the drug development process where they're more complicated, outcomes more unpredictable due to adverse events and unknown effects. So really good progress being made. I'm really excited to see that pilot happening within the Nordics. And I'm hopeful that in the future, this can be more broadly adopted across Europe not just within simpler studies, but those more complicated ones as well. That's an appropriate summary, Jack. And look, hopefully over the coming years, you know, we're going to build up a body of evidence and a body of data about this. We'll be able to review the results of decentralized clinical trials versus your traditional trial and really get a clearer picture on are there differences in trial outcomes for one, but also what are some of the relevant ethical or regulatory or organizational barriers that need to be crossed to enable this approach. To your point, Ali, really thinking through the regulatory paths and guidance here is going to be key for Europe and the EMA. Here in the States, the FDA recently released guidance on decentralized trials that included design consideration, digital health technology use for data collection, what are the roles of sponsors and investigators, And that's all in the vein of making sure that when we're conducting these trials that our approving bodies feel very comfortable with the data that's being collected and view it as being sort of analogous to what we would think of as a more traditional clinical trial study. And I think here, this has really been positioned in the States as an opportunity for improving health equity. I think there's that same opportunity in Europe as well in terms of just getting a more diverse patient population into our studies, making sure that these medicines work across a broad array of different patient types and overall give more patients access to these potentially groundbreaking therapies. But I think there's a real benefit for life sciences organizations as well. We know that patient enrollment in clinical trials, patient sort of continuation throughout the entire clinical trial experience are big barriers in terms of being able to reach the appropriate milestones to bring a therapy to market. And anything that can help that will be a boon to these companies as well. In other hot off the press news around sort of health equity and improving health outcomes, we talked last week on the trending news US episode around the recent FDA approval here in the States of Zoranolone for postpartum depression. Jack, I'm curious what the buzz has been around this therapy in Europe. Yeah, Jim, whenever you're talking about a therapy that 
helps treat horrible conditions like postpartum depression. And, and actually, this drug was also submitted to the FDA for an indication around major depressive disorder. It really can't help but get quite emotionally invested in that, given how many people are affected by those conditions, which impact their lives so heavily. And I know that this news has been pretty well received in Europe because there's such a high unmet need from a postpartum depression standpoint in terms of it's a horrible, horrible condition that patients face. Not often talked about. There's a bit of a stigma here in the UK and across Europe where we're not too open with our feelings in terms of things like this. So not openly talked about, huge unmet need, not many treatments beyond things like talking therapies that exist in the market right now to help patients suffering from these devastating conditions. So it was a shame that major depressive disorder did not get approved by the FDA, given that that actually impacts a much larger patient population than postpartum depression. But still great that PPD got approved. But it's worth noting that Given that the Biogen, the company that markets or developed these drugs together with Sage Therapeutics, did not get the indication approved for MDD, which is a large market for them, it does beg the question in terms of from a European or broader launch perspective across the rest of the world, whether Sage and Biogen will invest and do that given that they only got the PPD indication. So time will tell in terms of whether it does get launched across Europe to help those patients. But in terms of how the drug actually works, it actually works on the stress management centers of the brain, and it's much faster than traditional serotonin-based medicines. And actually around 20% of all women experiencing postpartum depression, you know, there's a high unmet need, as I talked about. It's got this rapid efficacy. It's very fast acting in terms of its mode of action. However, there are some question marks over the drug in terms of its ability to suffice for maintenance therapy. So that's ongoing therapy in these women who may be at risk of a longer term psychiatric conditions like major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder. Jack, such an emotive topic. I know both friends and family that have suffered from PPD. And as you said, at least in Europe at the moment, there isn't a clear treatment method. Really promising to hear the approval in the U.S., of alone. I'm just wondering, Jack, I know that you spent a lot of time in this therapy area. What are some of the risk factors associated with PPD and, and also how easy are they to diagnose? Yeah, so one of the main issues with postpartum depression is it goes largely undetected and untreated, particularly in women of colour and women in lower socioeconomic classes. Uh, when it comes to other risk factors, there's increasing evidence that loneliness is one of these. And a recent poll in the UK found that more than half of parents experienced loneliness since becoming a parent, and a fifth had felt lonely in the last week. So that's very, very sad indeed. And what has been shown to be really key here is access to this like ongoing continuity of care or access to regular support. And there has been an improvement in the postnatal depression scale for mothers. However, just to round this one out, it's it very often these resources are far too scarce. These symptoms are missed, meaning no diagnosis is officially made. And these poor patients have to suffer with this really tough condition that impacts both themselves, obviously, and their wider family members. So hopefully we'll get some good news soon in terms of hopefully getting this drug approved and out and launched across Europe and the rest of the world to really meet this unmet need that we've talked about in terms of this condition. And then hopefully we'll get some good news for major depressive disorder as well, because again, there's a large unmet need there. And, you know, the traditional antidepressants medications, which we've actually covered on a, you know, a few months ago, on one of our podcasts, aren't actually that effective over the long term. They're really over prescribed. 
and there's not a lot of evidence to support them over the long term in terms of mitigating patients that suffer for these symptoms. So hopefully some good news to come on this topic. Clearly, this is really critical for health and for social professionals, but also family members to stay attuned to those symptoms, Jack, that you mentioned, particularly as there is a marked lack of postpartum support more broadly, whether that's for the mental health issues that we just discussed or simply for matters like breastfeeding. And clearly in countries like the US, for example, where there is an absence of affordable childcare and not a standardized parental leave, something like Zoranolone could hold real promise. As someone who has relatively recently gone through the postpartum period, the story is very close to my heart and I think very encouraging in terms of providing hope to women navigating what can already be a challenging time. You might be navigating depression as well, because to your point, what should feel like a very universal experience can often feel quite isolating, particularly for first-time parents. So really encouraging to hear about the options that will be available here to us in the States, and I hope will be available to new mothers in Europe as well. As always, Jack and Ali, we know the only constant in the healthcare industry is change, so I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.